Hello, 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 listeners, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by my stupendous co-host, Miss Amy Hollenkamp, RD. Hello, everybody. And we are squeezing in a little extra something-something for you all this week with some Q&A. So, Amy, shall I get right to it? Yeah. Uh, I have some on a spreadsheet here, and I'll just, uh, I'll kind of rattle them off, and then I'll let you take first go at them, and I'll weigh in whenever I can. So from, uh, think way back, my dear, way back to the detoxification episode, this question came from the detox episode on YouTube. And Gino asks, could you explain why bile would saturate stools and turn them dark green? What is going on with this? Like, usually, if bile is not being absorbed, it changes the color of stools to green if things are moving a little bit too quickly through the gut and the bile is not being reabsorbed um that would be my thought if it was green is that similar to what you would think nikki yeah i would think yeah either i would ask does this person have diarrhea or loose stools as part of their clinical picture i would kind of think they would um so just like the faster transit time right could, could do that um there are microbes that gobble up bile. So mm-hmm. maybe there's like a deficiency in one or more of those microbes potentially. Yeah. And also just like, does the person have gallstones or gallbladder sludge or any sort of like liver involvement? I would start thinking along that angle as well. For so like sure. is, is there an overproduction or like a dysregulated release of bile? That's part of this picture. Um, yeah. Those those would kind of be my my top questions more than likely yeah. for that person. And I would say too, I'd probably want to rule out that they weren't like eating a ton of green <laughs> green foods yeah. or something like that that could yeah. potentially change the stool color as well. Like True. I think um, you know, at least ruling out that you're not, you know, eating tons of green smoothies or something like that that could potentially turn the stool a little bit greener. Mm-hmm. Um that's what I'd want to rule out as well. Yeah. I think the diarrhea that like that piece of it and trying to work on motility and transit speed and work on the hypothesized diarrhea would probably mm-hmm. be my first angle and if yeah. if slowing down the diarrhea or aiding that did not help in and of itself, I would probably personally send this person out for a gallbladder ultrasound. Yeah. They're non-invasive, it's relatively cheap and easy to do, and it'll give you a peek and tell you if you have gallstones or gallbladder sludge. Um, so that's that's probably how I would handle that. Um, but yeah, it's basically the actual answer to your question is what you said, Amy. It's that there is more, more bile acids are making it to the colon than mm-hmm. we would otherwise expect. Why that's happening is kind of up for grabs. But like I said, I would look to like liver or gallbladder dysfunction, fast transit time, maybe a dysbiosis of some sort. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's too many bile acids making it to the colon intact that should not normally make it down to the colon. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why that happens. Um, okay, let's see. Next, we have the SIBO root cause, low stomach acid, and PPI episode. Uh, Alex says, I'm in the middle of the podcast thinking about the whole, the whole research methods of the newer studies. Oh, whoa, whoa. This is a big one. Hold on. (laughs) My spreadsheet is like doing really weird things. So hold on, hold on. Um, I have to scroll and read. All right. 
I'm in the middle of the podcast thinking about the whole research methods for the newer studies, which is why I'm on this podcast because, hold on, <laughs> let me scroll, <laughs> because I first read the older ones. My GP is, is trying to prescribe me PPIs for SIBO-like symptoms without any notable, oh, no. uh, noticeable or real acid reflux. I just saw a person, <laughs> the person had IBS. I think bloating and diarrhea were the main complaints, and they were prescribed a PPI. Oh my god! They had they had no reflux until after they took the PPI. Oh gosh! So anyway, um, so okay, so the GP is trying to prescribe a PPI for SIBO-like symptoms without any noticeable or real acid reflux. Actually, quite the opposite. He literally told me that one. Oh no, I can't read the rest. He told me that one. What? No. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess we have a mystery on our hands. Oh, oh, no. Oh, it's a big one. Hold on. I figured out how to get it to actually show me the whole thing. Um, He said that if... uh, This is going to be such a boring episode. Looking at me squint. Uh, He literally told me that one of his instructions is that he can't test for SIBO unless I take the PPI first. What? Oh, no. I've I've honestly heard that before, though, too. Injustice. That's bullshit if I ever heard it. All right. uh, There's more, Amy. There's more. (laughs) He also said that if he will, if he will do it, he will do a fecal sample, not a breath test, which is also what they used in the newer studies. And that's when it hit me. And I just found this. You can't test for SIBO with a fecal sample. Correct. (laughs) I just did a whole video on my YouTube channel on Triangle Guts about how you cannot test for SIBO based on a stool test. End of story. No. Uh, this is what explains how the numbers went from significant to no correlation. Oh, they're using stool tests to identify SIBO in the newer PPI SIBO correlation studies? <gasps> Those dogs! They, this is, this is getting good, guys. All right. Um, and that's what they used in these newer studies, and that's what it hit me. And I just found this. You can't test for SIBO with a fecal sample. This is what explains how the numbers went from significant to no correlation. They changed the diagnostic method, which has no clinical backing. Yeah, this is not the first time a GP has prescribed a medication for me that one, doesn't help with the problem, two, causes more side effects than any help, and three, will be proven uh, not to work later, and whatever I said is dismissed, but then years later, same GP says that uh, he didn't gaslight me years ago. Dude, I think you need a new primary. Care. Right. <laughs> right. Well, that's just, right. Uh, just right off the bat, I would find a new primary care for sure. I um, know. I know. Oh, that's I'm awful. Not, I'm not falling for this kind of incompetence again. And I'm fed up of GPs being so incompetent, having to do a thorough research and read a bunch of medical studies just because my GP uh, doesn't want to send me to a specialist or just is incompetent. I know there are exceptions to this, but my experience. Uh, my experience, this is how the vast majority operates here in Europe. Dude, America's not much better, I tell you. I might post another comment once I'm done with this podcast. God. So many There's problems. a lot to unpack there. I think... There is. It's a very large paragraph, but I'm glad well... I got through it all. <laughs> I... It feels like we've had tr- micro traumas through that whole... I know! Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know... I think you're exactly right. I think the probably the biggest takeaway from that is if you feel like your provider is not like working with you at all to or leave, gaslighting you, 
right to to leave um i mean you know i i think that there should be a mutual respect between like a patient and a provider for sure and again not all gps are bad i've definitely seen some really good gps with some of my clients and again i have a good gp so it's like Uh you know there are good ones out there that will listen um and so it's a shame when you have that level of disregard for the the patient wanting it just a test too that's what blows my mind most of the time it's like i don't understand how a provider would be so up in arms of testing something it's it's not like you're asking for heroin right like or opioids or something that like could have an addictive nature like have an addictive quality to it if you just want a damn test i don't for the life of me, understand that. Right. And again, to your point, you don't have reflux. Like, right. <laughs> why, on, why on earth would you try a PPI drug if you don't have reflux? It's it's right. inappropriate. And the thing that boggles my mind with stuff like this, and it could be that that's like the protocol set forth by that person's employer. It could be that their clinic or their hospital system has this policy that, no, you can't test for SIBO until they try a PPI first. It's still dumb, and it's still outrageous and potentially dangerous, but, like, maybe it's not up to that individual doctor. But, like, if I if I was in that position as the doctor, if it was something that was a matter of company policy and it was not my doing, I would tell you that because, hey. I don't know, like, I don't want you to hate me. Um, right. So I don't know what to make of that, but... Uh, point blank, I would not take a PPI if you right. don't have a reason to. I think that that is absolutely dumb and dangerous and it boggles my mind. Um, and I'm going to have to take a look at some of those newer studies now and see what you're talking about. But if they went from using aspirates or breath testing studies to evaluating for SIBO based on stool tests, that is 100% not supported by data and it would make an awful lot of sense why again like 20 you know 2015 2016 all the evidence was saying wow yeah ppis could definitely cause SIBO and now the newer studies are saying nah keep taking your pilosec like that that would make an awful lot of sense so thank you for unearthing that alex i'm definitely going to have to look into that and i'll probably make a video for my youtube channel at some point yeah goodness um okay well let's take a deep breath <sighs> recover from <laughs> The trauma of reading that. I'm so sorry, Alex. Also, it's so frustrating. Uh, Nikki, we need to do maybe a um, an episode where we pull up false things that we find on the internet. Because <laughs> you've been <laughs> on a roll lately. I have. I've been. I've been on the, the Instagrams, not making friends. I I love it. Honestly, it's the internet, guys, is a dangerous place because there's. <laughs> They again. I've said this before. They will give anybody a YouTube channel. They'll give anybody a blog. They'll give anybody a website. They'll give anybody a email address. They'll give anybody an Instagram account, a Facebook page, a Twitter account. Like it's so hard to tell who actually knows what they're doing and who actually has good, valuable information to share versus the people who just share the clickbaity crap and get a lot of follows, right? But, or just um, that know the out al- know the algorithm like yeah know how to play the algorithms or run ads like one of the things i texted you about this week it was on an advertisement and 
yeah, I roasted them pretty good, I hope. But <laughs> just, you know, it's like you can pay money to the Facebook and Instagram gods and they'll promote your stuff all over the place, whether right. it's true or not. <sighs> okay, anyway, moving on, moving on. Um, I feel like I'm traumatized with Alex because of that. That's so shitty. Um, in the gut diversity episode, Kimberly asks, if you have to take an antibiotic after recovering from SIBO, what should you do to help diversify and rebuild? Ooh, I'm going to kick it to the dietitian in the house first, and then I'll weigh in afterward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think you still want to make sure after you've cleared that you understand and are addressing root causal factors. So I think that that's a, a, a key thing to make sure that you're addressing or have addressed or are still working on. I think that, you know, when it comes to rebuilding, I think everyone wants like a very systemic, like regimented reintro, but I think there's so much variability with how quickly people can rebuild and um, add things back in. But I think from a rebuilding standpoint, um, I really like, you know, postbiotics, prebiotics, probiotics, like the three Ps, I think can be really beneficial. But I think in general, like, to build long-term resilience and um, microbiome diversity, it all comes down to diet. Like, to really, really rebuild that and build resilience up. And I think that that's the biggest lie in the SIBO space is that, like, for your gut to truly heal, you have to be limited. When in reality, if you want to build resilience in your gut, you have to eat as broad as as possible in the context of your case. I mean, obviously, if you have celiac or, you know, a dairy allergy or something like that, avoiding those makes sense. But eating as broad of diversity in in plant fibers and things like that is what's going to really rebuild your gut and build resilience long term. Yeah. And I agree. I think first and foremost, the diversity of your plant foods is going to be the number one. Um, And that could even include things like, you know, culinary herbs and spices, like throw, you know, if you make fish, throw some dill on the fish. If you, you know, make some pet, like have pasta with pesto on it instead of tomato sauce every now and then. Right. Kind of mix it up. But I think focusing on your dietary diversity would be the number one. And it's the safest thing to do typically. Then, uh, you know, you can bring in, like you said, prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics. You can do all right. the, the kind of bells and whistles there. Um, but, you know, before you go reaching for the inulin or the GOS or the PHGG, I would make sure that you're getting some diversity through your food, ideally. Um, and right. I will say, I'm not totally clear the question, the way it's worded. I'm not sure if she's talking about taking antibiotics specifically to treat SIBO. Yeah. Or if it's like this person had SIBO once and then they had to take antibiotics for like a sinus infection and she's worried Uh, about her gut health. That's kind of how I read it initially. Um, So, yeah, you know, I think just A, if that is the case, if I'm reading that correctly, I would say A, try to avoid the antibiotic if possible and make sure that you are receiving a diagnosis that merits an antibiotic. So I think I told my story on one episode before where... I went to urgent care with what was later very clearly viral um, uh, viral bronchitis, and she gave me an antibiotic for it. She gave me doxycycline. 
I took one day of the doxycycline because my mom had convinced me I was going to die. And then I realized, wait, I'm a doctor. I have a stethoscope. So I Google the diff or I YouTube the different types of coughs. And it turned out, no, that is a classic viral bronchitis cough. I don't know. No, no, no. This sounds nothing like pneumonia. And it, the fact that antibiotics are prescribed unnecessarily still in this day and age just boggles my mind and frustrates me to no end. So A, I would really question your provider and do your due diligence and make sure that you need to take the antibiotics. Um, and then if you do, like if you're having a dental procedure or a surgery, or if it really is an honest to goodness bacterial infection, or you have like a sinus infection from you know where, then um, food diversity is the best thing you can do to maintain your right. gut health. And and I will add to like things like exercise have been shown to build diversity. Oh, yep. Um, even like maybe going outside and exposing yourself to more microbes. I mean, those can be other things to include as well. And I think too, just even having like stress management, all the lifestyle factors I think are going to be important yep. for, for diversity Sleep. just because they help maintain digestive capacity and motility. Yeah, that makes sense. Even pets, right? You know, chip. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't have a chip in your life, maybe go <laughs> visit somebody who has a, a dog and let them lick you all over. I don't know. You could get creative with it, but I think food is probably the the best thing you could do. Uh, yeah, now, for sure. Let's squeeze in one more. We'll keep this kind of short and sweet. From the gut brain axis episode, Keith asks, "How does heart rate change when you improve the vagus nerve?" Um, I'll weigh in quickly if you don't mind, Amy. I think the mm -hmm. bigger thing is heart rate variability that's going to change. Um, I don't know if the heart, if your heart rate overall is going to change tremendously. It should theoretically decrease. Um, but I think the bigger thing is heart rate variability. And that ends up, this is probably like the worst explanation of it, but if all of your heartbeats are the exact same length and they are spaced totally equally apart, believe it or not, that's a bad thing. Like it's being, it feels like it should be a good thing, but like right. too much, too much uniformity in the cadence of your heartbeat actually is bad. And it's that lower heart rate variability is, is correlated with all sorts of disease processes and higher heart rate variability is associated with protection from all sorts of disease processes. Mm -hmm. So that's really what's going to change is like, you'll have heartbeats that are of varying, I don't, I don't know. I, I, that's as much as I can explain it, but um, we both, right. I don't know if you're wearing yours right now, but we both have right these aura rings that can help us track heart rate variability. And you know what, Amy, actually, I'm going to brag. I had a personal best. I, P I PB'd, I PR'd on my heart rate variability, you want to know what I did? What? I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> no, really. Like, yeah. I've I've tried playing with different herbs and supplements and hippy dippy stuff. I've I've played with a bunch of different things, and my current personal best. It happened. Um, I think just this weekend. It happened to be a day that I did literally nothing. I did not get out of my pajamas all day long. I watched at least four, if not five, episodes of Gilmore Girls on Netflix. Um, I I ate what I wanted to eat when I wanted to eat it, pretty much. Um, I think I slept in a little bit. 
Oh, my daughter was at Graham and Grandpa's house, so we didn't have the extremely, extremely opinionated, opinionated but wonderful five-year-old running around. And I just literally had the most chilled day on planet Earth. And then when I looked at my data the next day, I had a PR on my heart rate variability. So that's that's how it's done, folks, apparently, or at least it is for me. So uh, Dang, look at yeah. you. Yeah, living so your I'm best excited. Life. I know, living, hashtag living my best life. Yes. Hashtag goals. Um, so yeah, so theoretically, your heart rate would go down a little bit if you improve your vagal nerve tone, but really, you're going to want to look at heart rate variability. That's what's going to improve. Um, so a little, little harder for the average Joe America to assess, but um, but there are ways if you want to get yeah, a fun Yeah, I sort of think about it like the term that I like is, and you can, you would think that having like equally spaced beats would be the way to go, but... I think of it as almost it shows nervous system flexibility, like thinking of it in that way, like how your nerve, the flexibility of your nervous system. Um, but yeah, I think heart rate variability is a really interesting tool. Um, and again, sometimes there isn't a rhyme or reason, like even with mine, um, you know, you could be doing all the, the meditation. Like sometimes I felt like when I was doing hardcore meditation, my heart rate variability would go down weirdly mm. and i don't know if it was like the stress of feeling like oh i'm in a meditation routine and i had to do it at this specific time yeah yeah um and i tend to be a little bit of a i would say an overanalyzer so like when i'm meditating i'm like am i in that state yet i don't know and there's yeah. certainly good good meditations that i would do um but yeah i think like for me I definitely notice a pretty strong correlation between heart rate variability and change of season. So mm -hmm. if I'm outside more, my heart rate variability goes up. That's probably the strongest correlation I've seen personally. And then yeah. obviously, like, I think sleep does affect mine as well. Yeah. Um, I would say less so. And the only other thing I would say the other thing I've seen a pattern with is my cycle. Which I find really interesting. Like, my cycle in my back half, the luteal phase, my heart rate variability drops probably 20 points. Huh. Isn't Which I find really I'm interesting. Have, I'm going to have to look at mine. I'll, like, sync up my Aura Ring app and my Flow app and see where things line right. up. Right, right. really interesting. I wonder if I have... I don't think I have a strong correlation with mine. Mine's really strong. And I, like, huh. I'm sort of thinking like if there's anything in particular like hormonally that could be going on um mm. but usually again i have pretty high heart rate variability through my follicular phase and then once ovulation hits i have a decline huh interesting i have no hypothesis for that but that's fascinating anyhow yeah well it's been a clear pattern of mine huh well yeah well uh there you have it folks so if you want to improve heart rate variability don't do anything like, give yourself a freaking break every now and then. Right. Uh, get outside and get you a follicular phase. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, those, those are like the three big bullet points right now. And get sleep and, you know, yeah. there's probably other stuff too. I should start trying. I wonder if Wednesdays are really good heart rate variability days for both of us because we get to talk to each other and nerd out on Ooh, the podcast. We should track that. We might have like one really good day every week, in which case we clearly just need to talk every single day. So right. that might be the cure too. All right, guys. Well, that's all we had time for for the moment. That's a wrap. So thank you for tuning in for this little 
mini Q&A segment. Uh, feel free, as always, to put more cues in the uh, YouTube comment section. That's a nice, easy way to do it. Uh, you can email us. And I don't know if, I don't think I've really mined Instagram. So don't use Instagram. If you want your cues covered on the Q&A segments, <laughs> email and YouTube comments. Those are probably your two best bets. And until next time, we will see you in the next podcast episode. Later, skater.